0: The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast with me, Claire Armistead. And me, Richard Lee. In this episode, we mark Refugee Week, a time when the world's focus goes to the struggles and the triumphs of all those who have, for whatever reason, been forced to leave their homes in search of a better, or indeed any, life. Richard, you invited Paitim Statovsi and Dina Nyeri to join us. Why these two in particular?
1: Well, it's a, a, the sort of obvious, straightforward reason. They're both writers are refugees themselves. Nyeri fled Iran in 1988 when she was only eight years old with her mother and brother leaving her father behind and grew up in Oklahoma. And Statovci left Kosovo in 1992, when he was only two years old and grew up in Helsinki. But it's also because they have interesting journeys as writers as well. Statovci's first novel, My Cat Yugoslavia, which was published in English in 2017, was a realist account of an Albanian woman who flees to Finland in the 1980s, alongside a story of her son, a few years later, Bekim, as a young man who has a relationship with an aggressive, homophobic, talking cat. (laughs) <laughs> <That's an> extraordinary <laughs> it's sort thing. of
0: it's overtones of, of Bulgakov there.
1: Yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but but very much uh, less charming, <laughs> if we can say than than the Master and Margarita's cat. In his second novel, Crossing, he's left magical realism behind with the story of Bouillard. But it's another story divided into two. It's an account of Bouillard's life in Albania before leaving and why he decides he has to leave with his friend Agim, and also of the fractured life he lives after crossing over to Europe. Nayeri is also on an interesting journey as a writer. She's written two novels which were based closely on her own experience. There's A Teaspoon of Earth and Sea, Set in Iran, which was published in 2013, and Refuge in 2017, which is about the experience of someone who's who's fled from Iran. But now she's turned to memoir, she's turned to reportage with the ungrateful refugee now, this is a book-length treatment of something that she published first as an essay in The Guardian in 2017, where she explores the idea about refugees, that the idea that they should shed their own identities and, and, and they should offer eternal thanks for the welcome that they receive, for the countries they, they end up. So when they came to the studio, I began by asking her how the project started.
2: Well, it actually began around 2015, 2016 when I became a mother mm. and then so much changed in the world. Trump was elected, the vote for Brexit happened. And, and it was a real moment, wasn't yes, it? A kind of shift. It was. And then for me personally, it was a moment. I mean, becoming a mother to this very Iranian-looking little girl. <laughs> and I, I had been so um, comfortable, I guess, in my Americanness. now. It had been so many years. I had the passport. I was um, happy. And then suddenly I became very, very afraid. And um, I had the tools of a fiction writer, but I hadn't really ventured so far into nonfiction. So I wrote this essay called The Ungrateful Refugee about what it is that, you know, frightens and angers me in the world and what I've lived. And the essay went viral. I mean, you guys published it. Thank you. (laughs) It was amazing. And but but then after that, you know, when I started to think about a book, I thought, you know, I need to leave my own experience. I want to go and find, you know, stories of other people and to say something much, much bigger. I had an email from a reader after that. Oh, God, I had so many emails from readers, but there was one that just really struck me. And. And she said, you know, and the emotion was just pouring out of this email, like, I have so many refugee friends, and I didn't know I was doing this to them. How could I not know? I'm so sorry. And I thought, wow, you know, there are so many loving and kind Native-born people who want to know what we think and what we experience so I'm going to tell them.
1: Because mm, I mean the idea that a refugee should be ungrateful is just this kind of rather shocking thing. Yeah
2: but. or that they should posture their gratitude you know for the sake of the native born rather than feel it genuinely in their hearts which they will if you you know just take them in I suppose.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you say that also that your own experience was that being a refugee yourself you took on many different identities, many different forms. You're almost like a chameleon.
2: Oh, absolutely. The the chameleon kind of image is one that I've used so often because it's just so, you know, so very, very accurate. I mean, I learned to change myself from a, an early age it, just by trying to make myself American. I used a tape recorder to try to change my accent because I realized that it was wrong. Uh, and imagine also that I was trying to change it to one of like central Oklahoma <laughs> in the 90s. So then I had to do it again when I went to college on the East Coast. <laughs> And then, of course, I've lived in all these different places and, and in so many different ways. I've, you know, lived in every social class in, a, in a cities and villages and, and I've been an outsider and an insider and I've just learned to blend and I've met so many, you know, other third culture sort of people who have just learned to, you know, take in their environment for a little while and then very quickly switch on to whatever but they need to be. This is
1: something that you did not only out of necessity, but also something that, that became a source of pride for you.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. The fact that I could change, that I could blend and be comfortable in any environment was, it felt like a skill. It felt like a tool, a protective tool.
1: Uh, the central character in your novel, Paitim, is something of a, of a shapeshifter as well. I mean, maybe you could read something from the beginning of the book where we
3: first meet Buya. Sure and uh, I mean, I can totally relate what you're saying about about everything because I grew up in a refugee family in in Finland, and I moved there when I was two years old, so I have no memories of life in Kosovo whatsoever, but I was growing up, I was constantly confronted about the restlessness and the constant violence in in Kosovo and I sort of I started feeling ashamed for my nationality and my cultural background because my home country was only known for. The violence and the, and the war, so I somehow thought that it was in a way I was seen differently because of that less deserving and less talented, and that it was something you had to leave behind yeah and, and, and that the war has somehow broken me and torn me apart, and people kept asking me about it and what it is like to grow up between cultures and religions and nationalities and my experience as a Finnish Kosovan wasn 't divided. It it was all natural and whole and beautiful to me, but then other people saw me as this this shattered person, which I guess I wasn't. But yeah, I, I picked up this tendency to narrow the gap between myself and the Finnish my Finnish peers and it turned out it wasn't that successful because <laughs> <laughs> we then not that many similarities in the end. But yeah, so and this protagonist is a you could call him a pathological liar in a way, but he does this this lying thing because Of that same sense of shame that I've carried around with me for my my whole life, but yeah, so uh, I'll just shut up now and and start reading I am a 22 year old man who at times behaves like the men of my imagination, my name could be Anton or Adam or Gideon, whatever pleases my ear at any given moment I am French or German or Greek but never Albanian, and I walk in a particular way, the way my father taught me to walk To follow his example, flat-footed and with a wide gait, aware of how to hold my chest and shoulders, my jaw tight, as though to ensure nobody trespasses on my territory. At times like this, the woman within me burns on a pyre. When I'm sitting at a cafe or a restaurant and the waiter brings me the bill and doesn't ask why I'm eating alone, the woman inside me smoulders. When I look for flaws in my dish and send it back to the kitchen, or when I walk into a store and the assistants approach me, she bursts once again into flames, becoming part of a continuum that started at the moment we were told that woman was born of man's rib, not as a man, but to live alongside him, at his left-hand side. Sometimes. I am a 22-year-old woman who behaves however she pleases. I am Amina or Anastasia. The name is irrelevant. And I move the way I remember my mother moving, my heels not touching the ground. I never argue with men. I know better. I paint my face with foundation, dust my cheeks with powder, carefully etch eyeliner around my eyes, fill in my brows, dab some mascara and coif my lashes, put in a set of blue contact lenses to be born again, and at that moment, the man within me does not burn, not at all, but joins me as I walk around the town.
1: And that, that radical flexibility is
3: born, do you say, out of shame? Yeah, well, w- for, for me, it was like that. I'm not talking about my personal experiences in this book, but uh, it's definitely uh, the shame I have felt towards being an ethnic Albanian has really led me into situations I'm not I didn't know how to act in these situations, but I was so ashamed of my background that I constructed this another another persona i I became this person other people wanted to see and and because in many moments in my childhood, you know my my background was brought up in a in a very negative way when I was late from school uh, my teachers didn't tell me that please be on time the next time. They said that you know in Finland. We come to school when school starts or yes. if I if I I didn't start any fights, but if I was in a fight, my teachers wouldn't say that you know give me detention or anything or something like that. They, they, they would say that, you know, in Finland, we don't hit people mm-hmm. or even though you come from a place of violence, we don't accept it here. So everything was, you know, or I felt like m- in many situations, my background was brought up in an in unnecessary way. Yeah. This is a very difficult thing to, to talk about, really, isn't it? I mean, it takes Bouya almost the entire novel to come back
1: to that initial experience of arriving in Italy and being in a, in a military barracks and, and finding himself humiliated by the idea of accepting charity. That's, the, that's, yeah. a, a, that's a humiliation you found uh, with, it, with all the people you met, isn't it, Dean?
2: Oh, absolutely. Shame is such a big theme. Humiliation is such a big theme, you know, because the thing is that people, you know, like us and like the people that are coming through to to, to the West today, the biggest thing they leave behind is their dignity. And people don't realize that because there is just so much need, um, physical need. You know, you have the need for food, for shelter, for refuge somewhere, you know, and all of that stuff just takes precedent over the intangible things like, like pride, like dignity, like a sense of self, a profession, a purpose in life. They leave all of that behind. This was the reason I think that my father didn't come with us because what would he be in America? Um, Whereas he was a a well-respected dental surgeon in Isfahan. So, yeah, I think this is a theme that has been with me the entire time. And, you know, as you were reading, the the sentence that just struck me was, you know, the woman inside me smoulders. Yes, like that (laughs) is what happens with the shame. And it is the woman that smoulders, you know, and I could talk about that for a really long time. But um, uh, I'm going to read your book.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Is this, I mean, this is part of the reason that accepting this kind of the, the charity that when there's obvious need, is part of the reason the legal distinction between the, the idea of a refugee and economic migrants, mm-hmm. which are with the, the legal position is so very different, is part of the problem that this gap.
2: Absolutely. Um, you know, I think there is so much that's problematic with that definition or that distinction, um, you know, an, an economic migrant, because first of all, just casually, people use it as a way to dismiss a person's life story and to say that you do not have a good reason to be here. And that right there ignores the, the greatest philosophical question of the accident of birth, why do you having been born here, get to decide what is good enough for someone else that they don't get to pick up and, and move somewhere for something better. You know, the very instinct of going and getting a better life for yourself is applauded in our children as ambition, as drive, as, you know, a sense of even duty. But, you know, to someone who's crossing borders, coming from east to west, uh, that is a reason to hold them back. And also, you know, one thing I, I ask in the book is, is a wasted life, you know, just as much of a life lost, you know, yes, it gets lost over years and decades, but it's still a life in danger. And so I think we need to address that. Um, the fact that people come here for many, many valid reasons, and only some of them are acknowledged by the Home Office and even by the populations here who essentially just want to protect, you know, the things that they have, the things that they were born with. And I, I just, I question that from the very beginning.
1: Not only that, but also because some of the reasons why people in the West are so very comfortable are expensive in terms of misery elsewhere.
2: Oh, absolutely. I mean, the world has uh, certain finite resources and we are the primary beneficiaries as people who live in the West. And that comes at somebody's expense. It's very, very easy to overlook all that, the history of it, and and to look kind of, you know, philosophically a little bit at at a larger question. I think people tend to look at these very clever seeming, I suppose, economic analyses of things like, well, how much good do migrants do for us? Um, And then they forget about the bigger question of what do we owe each other? and what do they owe us and how much of the world's resources are we owed? It's like, you know, have you heard of like the Rawlsian original position? Yeah, like that. Like if you were to ask yourself, you know, if I were to create a society not knowing where in that society I would fall, what would I create? You know, I don't know that I'm going to be in the, you know, top 10% or 5%. Actually, most likely I'm going to be a farmer somewhere, you know, where it's a struggle to be a farmer. So I should probably make it okay for that person. (laughs)
0: In case you were wondering what the word Rawlsian means, Dina was referring to John Rawls' original position. I found this concept quite interesting, Richard. Can you explain who John Rawls was and what the original position is?
1: Well, he's a, the, Rawls is a US philosopher who died in 2002, and the original position is a thought experiment that he first talked about in the 1970s. It's designed to solve the problem of how do you get to some impartial principles of justice. And the idea is that um, you imagine yourself making choices about how the world should be constructed, how society should be organised, but you make these choices behind what he called a veil of ignorance. So the idea is that before you get to say what role you're going to play in society, you have to decide how the society is organised, with the idea that if you don't know whether you're going to be a, a beggar or a thief or a soldier or a politician or the ruler of the entire world... Then you'll make choices that are as fair as possible.
0: So it's justice as fairness, he also called it. Mm. yeah. If you want to find out more about that, you can actually get his theory of justice, but it's quite expensive because you have to get it secondhand. It doesn't seem to be in print still. (laughs) Anyway, we'll be back after the break with Dina's searing analysis of the craft of storytelling that migrants and refugees need to have at their fingertips. The Voice Lab from The Guardian. Hey, do you ever want a quick catch-up on the news headlines first thing in the morning while you're making breakfast or getting dressed? Well, if you have a Google Assistant or Google Home, we can help with that. The Guardian Briefing is an experiment from the Voice Lab, which in under two minutes brings you up to speed with what you need to know about the day's top stories. We'll make sure you don't miss a thing. To listen at any time, just say, Hey Google! Speak to The Guardian Briefing. Welcome back. Dina was talking about the experience of being a refugee in an unwelcoming world that's lost its sense of freedom of movement. But what does this have to do with storytelling, Richard?
1: Well, this is one of the connections i found particularly interesting, a connection that might only have occurred to a novelist. As someone who spends her time uh, constructing stories, Nayeri's acutely aware of what it takes to convince an audience. And for refugees, the stories that they tell when they arrive in another country can be the difference between rejection and the possibility of a new life. So I asked her to read a little from The Ungrateful Refugee, where she talks about a storytelling workshop she led in London and how difficult it is for a refugee to tell a story that can be believed.
2: Absolutely, you know, before I read this, I should just say, you know, there are people that we have assigned to be the judge of these stories. And these are asylum officers who, um, you know, in the book I talk about their level of training, their level of empathy and compassion and how they're incentivized. And all of that is very, very important to know because these are not experts in the human condition or human behavior and they're not incentivized to help. So I'll just read a little excerpt here. So
1: this is talking about a, a storytelling workshop that That's you led right. that in right. London.
2: That's right, so here, um, you know, there's a whole chapter about. Storytelling and what is truth and all of that and this portion is about a storytelling workshop where I kind of ask myself some of those questions. Maybe the new arrivals sitting around my table at Libraria are tired of crafting their one story according to other people's rules. Maybe they want to create something different now or to finally tell their story truly raw and full of dirty details in the authentic storytelling language of their youth. Because to pass an asylum interview, you don't just need a true story. You need to tell that story the English way, or Dutch, or American way. Americans enjoy drama. They want to be moved. The Dutch want facts. The English have precedents, stories from each country deemed true that year, that month. The Dutch have something similar. Americans like the possibility of a grand success story. They adore exceptionalism and want to make all greatness American. Iranian storytelling doesn't satisfy any of these requirements. Just watch a film by Abbas Kiristami. No narrative rules. Iranians have no problem with spoilers. The ending isn't the pleasure of a story for them. They don't start in the middle of the action as Western writers are taught to do, or even at the beginning, where Western logic may take them. They start long before the beginning. Let me tell you about modern Iran, they say, because that is how they're trained to begin. And those are the savvy ones. The rest begin with the creation of the universe. But you start philosophizing and you've lost your Western listener. Iranians like symbols and metaphors. Lies aren't lies if they point somewhere. And you can signal your trauma and shame with a pointed, this isn't something for saying. Try that on a Dutch asylum officer who asks, why did you run? Sometimes traumatized Iranians speak in generalities. The government is corrupt, they're murderers. I can't say more, please. So, the Dutch officer decides you're lying. He won't change his mind. The English and the American will give you a few seconds more. In Iran, our literature is winding and dramatic. We bury the lead. We flourish and twist. The Dutch and Germans see these as markers of deception. In the Western world, literary critics condemn these techniques as false. To satisfy an asylum officer takes the same narrative sophistication it takes to please book critics. At once logical and judgmental of demeanor, both are on guard for manipulation and emotional trickery. Stick to the concrete, the five senses, they say. Sound natural, human, but also dazzle with your prose. Make me cry, but a whiff of sentimentality and you're done. Stay unseen, but also give compelling evidence of internal change. Go ahead, try it. It's not so hard, you penniless, traumatized fugitive from a ravaged village. Just write a story worthy of The New Yorker.
1: And it's worse than that as well because they're the the most hostile reader imaginable.
2: Yes, yes, exactly. Someone who's actually looking for individual inconsistencies to write off your entire story. Um, Someone who's looking for, you know, one detail that you forgot or that you said differently at the beginning of the interview. They actually store these little things away and then ask them again later in order to trip you up.
1: And, and it's not only that, but also they're confused as to who is telling the story. It's, as you say, it's not the author yes. that they have in front of them, they have a protagonist, they have the character.
2: Precisely, precisely. They p- give you all of the responsibility of, of the author who is, has researched everything and who has done the work of crafting a story, when what you're talking to, the person you're talking to, is a character, is a character with their own personality of things, a character who might say, a miracle happened, and I became a Christian, when really the psychological process behind that is so much more complex. And so then they dismiss that person as you would, you know, an an expert in whatever that they're talking about. (laughs) I
1: mean, you've been blurring that line between character and and author all all along, haven't you? I mean, why did you decide that you wanted to move into into something very much more approaching memoir and leave autofiction behind?
2: Well, I mean, there was a veil of, you know, a protective veil, I suppose, in fiction. And also, there are certain things that as a fiction writer, you know, I feel like I ca- can't say directly to people. You know, I, I, I love, you know, the art and craft of fiction. I love the fact that I can show one person's experience in, in a, in a moment and their entire truth in a moment, but in ways that not everyone will pick up. Um, you know, in f- if, when you write fiction, you write, f- you know, for everyone, but you expect the savviest readers to pick up certain things much more than, you know, your average reader who you hope will also enjoy it, you know. This is not what I wanted. I had something to say to everyone. And I wanted to have the tools of nonfiction, of rhetoric, to be able to say what I meant. To exactly. be more direct. Exactly, exactly. And at the same time, you're right. I was a character, too. Because, you know, that memoir, it's, it's from my point of view. And there are things I'm sure other people would disagree with. <laughs>
1: <laughs> your first novel featured a talking cat, didn't it, Paitim? Yes. And, and be, be you've left magical realism
3: behind. Are you kind of on a similar journey towards the concrete? Uh, I think that uh, it's these two books, they are very much about the same subjects, about the internalized self-hatred you are forced to grow up with if you are brought up in a surrounding that is pierced by stereotypes. And and so it's, uh, yeah, in my debut novel, the protagonist is a refugee and is is queer and he meets this talking cat in a gay bar and the cat turns out to be this big homophobic racist (laughs) creature. (laughs) uh, But then they go into this relationship together because the protagonist thinks and th- the cat is very violent against him and very, very brutal and awful, really. But the protagonist, the thing is, that the protagonist thinks that that is what he deserves in life. And he grows up to accept that, that he is, because the outside world is seeing him as less, so automatically he begins to believe those lies and those stereotypes about himself. And what you said about stories, it's, it's having a good story is everything, basically. it's uh, It's very much connected with the with the sense of shame i, I write about that and, and losing face is something where i come from is something it's one of the worst things that can happen to a person and being in a situation where you are laughed at is something that is literally it is
0: losing face
2: yeah, yeah.
3: it's it, it's it's a bad bad so in this story even this the protagonist in crossing goes into this participates into the, in this uh, singing competition at the end of the book which is basically Reality television is just an, an another analogy of a lie that is created because TV presents people in very simplistic and black and white way, and only a part of them gets to be on the show and aired.
1: I was going to ask. I mean, it's it's almost thirty years since you arrived right. in Finland. How yeah. do you, how do you think things have shifted over that period in terms of the the issues that you you're discussing in the novel, the the experience of being displaced?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's. <laughs> Any day now, I feel better.
1: <laughs> <I'm kidding. laughs> I mean, it, it it seems to me. I mean, Bouya and Agim—they're in Tirana, reading the newspapers. Yeah. Back in 1991. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, al- I, already I, there was hostility against. Yeah,
3: I, I still feel the same thing is happening in the in the in the world nowadays. I mean, in 2015, there were people fleeing from from Syria to Finland, and it, the, it was all over the news, and and magazines kept publishing pieces that were headlined like "There's a, a flood of." refugees coming into Finland or a, a, a volcano of, of refugees or like they were associating real people's lives, certain people's lives with like natural disasters and something that no one wants to happen like anywhere. But I feel like the same thing happened in with the former Yugoslavia and how the media covered the, the, the stories of Yugoslavia. And if something that awful would happen, let's say in Sweden or, or Germany, no one would say that there's a, a tsunami of of, of, of incomers. that We would all run to help them.
1: I and mean, this way of talking is, is what you call the biggest lie in the whole yes. uh, refugee crisis, the idea that it is a crisis at all.
2: Yes. Well, I think it's a crisis from somebody else's point of view. It's it's a crisis from the point of view of the people who've lost their homes and their families and who have to re- start over. It's not a crisis for us. Um, We already have everything in the world. And I think this language, um, you know, that you were talking about is... Exactly. You know, it is the biggest lie in in the crisis. It's not the individual stories that are false because they forgot a detail. It's the term swarm. You know, it's the, the term deluge. That's not what's happening. You know, I think there's something like 68 million displaced people in the world and of them about 40 are internally displaced of the 25 million, you know, refugees in the world. It's something like every year 500,000 or so try to enter Europe so you know we need to have a little bit of perspective. Yeah I mean that,
1: that becomes a, there's one refugee in per thousand people
2: or so yeah or so. yeah exactly um, you know each year so that's that's not really much it's not a deluge it's not a flood it's you know kind of a, a small trickle into a, a wealthy lush you know place where we can afford to share.
1: Yeah, do you think this hysteria is partly driven by the new kind of connectivity, so that we can see people on the move that we would otherwise have been hidden to us?
2: Exactly. I think. I think the thing is the the other side of this question. They are very, very good at doing two things. First, um, taking individual stories that would break anybody's heart and aggregating them, and only showing the the bigger, you know, the the monster. You know, the the refugees as a collective, a very faceless entity, which they can demonize and then use to scare us. And then another thing they do is use a few individual stories that, that play to, you know, their narrative and disseminate that to everyone. And, and again, you know, stoke up the fear. And, you know, I think that the way that we need to fight that is through the individual heartbreaking stories that we know are true in such a more, um, you know, what, what is the word? It, it just it hap- it ca- happens so much more often in the small, banal, heartbreaking ways that people lose their lives and then need to start again.
1: Uh, So I mean, is that the answer to focus on the individual's experience?
2: Well, absolutely. And I think the answer is, you know, first books like ours, both of ours, you know, stories that are of individuals and how their experience relates in so, so many ways to the experience of the native born. There are so many ways to see them as human and as people exactly like us, but then also just on a community level it's just, it's so important to not only go out and meet refugees, you know, but also to encourage other people in your circle to do that and to pull them into society. Even when they arrive here, they often are outside of society. They're afraid. They're full of shame. They're full of trauma. There are so many organizations that I don't know if we have time to mention them, but there's Host Nation, for example, is a UK organization that matches up people as befrienders. They'll take you if you're interested in soccer and find a refugee who's interested in soccer, football, I'm sorry, and <laughs> put you together. And then you can just go go and play and they say, you know what, don't just go play with them one on one, introduce them to your other English friends. Maybe some of those friends actually are kind of hostile to refugees, they won't be after they meet that one person. So Mm -hmm. the answer is just so much more grassroots, and we're fighting something so much more aggregate, it's going to be hard.
1: And you say that the the book in some sense was born out of the the change in your own situation when you became a mother. Has that change in situation, has that also altered your feelings about your experiences as, as a refugee?
2: you know, becoming a mother, yes, I think becoming a mother makes me see other people in a different way. It makes me see their vulnerabilities. It makes me see the child inside them in a second, whereas before I was just about me. I think there's something narcissistic about my own you know work i think before i became a mother but now everything isn't just about her and her generation and her friends and the world that she lives in you know suddenly the world is illuminated with other people and you know their pain and their hearts and their vulnerabilities and i think that that i mean it's it's a great privilege and i'm i'm really happy to have evolved as a writer in that way but also just as a human
3: <laughs> mm. yeah I, I i second that it, even though i come from an immigrant background and I come from a refugee family that's just such a such a small part of me and uh sometimes it's it's very uh, not annoying but very stressful to be always read as that one immigrant person or that with that refugee history because with this book I wanted to say that we should all get to dictate what our relationship is in relation to our gender sexuality our nationality because there are so many ways to be and so many ways to be Albanian is this it's not static in in any way and uh, it's a thing that everything I do or say in the world is not pierced by the fact that I am a, I come from a refugee family yeah. not everything is political but then oftentimes you know my fiction is made political and what I say is made also political even though and if something happens you know in Finland for example something well, ex example with the immigrant crisis it's the refugee crisis a couple of years ago. They the media called me and and uh, and they asked me, you know, what should we do about this situation? And I was like, dude, are you asking this for me because I come from a refugee family? Like, <laughs> yes. like
2: you're a I, I, yeah.
3: Yes. I'm I'm yes, sure. I've I've known a solution for the situation in in the Middle East. I'm just keeping it to myself.
2: That's yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
3: like a that's, a, really, that's yeah. a brilliant answer. Yeah. Yes. And I'm like, who gave you this job?
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, the funny thing yeah. is, though, that you, you are answering it in a, in yeah. a you know, way through the stories that you choose to tell and, and the, the gift. Well, masses
0: to think about there. I, for one, will certainly be checking my privileges. Many thanks to Paitim Statovsi and Dina Nayeri. The Ungrateful Refugee is published by Canongate and Crossing is with Pushkin Press. Both are out now. World Refugee Day is on Thursday the 20th of June and there are always many wonderful literary events around the world linked to it. Do look them up and get involved. And if you missed it last summer, do listen in to our Refugee Tales podcast when we joined up with the Gatwick Detainees Welfare Group for a cross-country storytelling yomp. It is rather fabulous, though I say it myself. Next week, Bernadine Evaristo joins us to discuss the othering of people of colour in her nonetheless celebratory novel, Girl, Woman, Other. And Lena Vold talks about the chilling phenomenon of honour killings.
1: And as always, do contact us on Twitter, at Guardian Books, or leave a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts.
0: But for now, from me, Claire Armistead.
1: And me, Richard Lee.
0: And our producer, Susanna Trezillian. Goodbye, and thanks for listening.